Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. Many years ago, I can recall discovering that Jesus was actually the Messiah. The evidence was relatively clear to me. I mean, I could look through the prophecies that were given in the scriptures and I could see how he had fulfilled those prophecies. And so to me, it was a simple intellectual decision to recognize that he was truly the Messiah. What that really meant in my life, I, of course, had no idea about what that would mean. I had no idea what that would mean in my life as I would continue to grow and mature in not only the discovery of who he is, but also what he has actually done and what that means, how that applies to me in my personal life. I certainly had a long way to go. But understanding that he is the Messiah... I, of course, started to read through the New Testament to try to gain some greater insights concerning the Lord Jesus. And I can remember putting the Bible on my desk. I remember just closing it up and putting it down on the table and actually praying with great sincerity for the first time in my life. I knew what it was like to pray according to the liturgy or the prayers that had been established by the rabbis years ago. I knew what that kind of prayer was like, but this was the first time that I sincerely made an appeal to the Lord, and it sounded something like this. What I told him was that I had no idea what was being described in the New Testament. I I really had no idea. I mean, I could see what was going on in the Gospels. I understood what Jesus was doing there. But when it came to the letters that Paul wrote and the letters that Peter wrote and John wrote, I had no idea what they were talking about. And so I told him, I said, you know, Lord, I have no idea what is really contained within these scriptures, within the New Testament. I I have no idea what is really being described here or what is going on. And so I'm just not going to read this anymore. I'm not going to bother wasting my time, or yours for that matter, by reading through something that I just don't really understand. I have no idea what is being described here or what is being recorded here or what it means to me. I just don't really understand, so I'm not going to bother doing it anymore. Until you do something, you're going to have to intervene in some way in order to make things clear to me because I I have no idea how I'm going to be able to figure this out on my own. And that's how I feel, like I'm just on my own. In fact, and it just came to me spontaneously, I said, I don't even know what the gospel is. I mean, I know Jesus is the Messiah, but I don't really think that's really what the gospel is or what the good news is. There must be more to it than just that, than just to say that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, what really is the gospel. I remember asking the Lord that question, and several weeks later, he did intervene, and I found out what the gospel was through, of course, the ministry of somebody else who spoke to me through the radio, and I understood at that point what the gospel truly is, or at least it was a beginning stage. He gave me something to go on that I didn't have before, and through exploring what was described, I managed to eventually find out and discover and realize what the gospel really is, what salvation truly is. And that is so important because without understanding that, 
there is no way to know anything. I mean, if you think about it, if we are Christians because we believe the gospel, then if you don't know what the gospel is, then how can you really be a Christian? How can you believe something that you don't really know? And I have to tell you that when I understood what the gospel really is, I opened up the scriptures again. And at that point, with relatively few exceptions, they were all clear. They were all understandable. It was as if somebody snuck in and rewrote the Bible on me because beforehand I had no idea what was being described. But afterwards, it was totally obvious. It was totally understandable, of course, with some exceptions. And the Lord was gracious to eventually show me a number of these things that I did not understand before. And if I was to search through the scriptures today very carefully, I'm confident that I would find something that I did not feel I truly understood completely. But it doesn't really matter to me because I understand that if the Lord wants to share something with me concerning these uncertainties, that he will. And I will wait patiently and be very thankful for whatever he is gracious enough to give to me. But when understanding this important issue and realizing in my own life how critical it was to have a clear understanding of what the gospel really is, I began to ask other people this question, the question of what is the gospel? How would you describe the gospel? And for many years, as I continued to walk in my daily life and engage in the world that I was a part of, traveling throughout the United States and then eventually traveling throughout the world doing work in various capacities, when I would interact with somebody who esteemed to be a Christian or claimed to be a Christian, I would normally ask them the question, how would you describe the gospel? And I wasn't asking this question to be rude or to suggest that maybe I have an understanding that they don't and they should perhaps pay attention to me because I have some special unique knowledge about the gospel. I have sincerely asked that question many times because I want people to tell me how they understand the gospel. It tells me so much about who they are and where they are at and what their relationship is with their God. It tells me an awful lot about the individual, not so that I can make comparisons with them, but so that I can relate to them in a unique way based on what I know and understand about them. But in addition to that, I want them to consider how important the question is, and regardless of how they may answer that question, they should at least have an answer. And it has been very interesting to see that most Christians who I ask that question of, they have no answer for that question. Or the answers that they give, they know full well that these answers are not really answers. Things like, well, the gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the gospel. It's what is recorded in the gospels. And we know better. That's not really what the gospel is. The good news is a solution to a problem between us and God. It has nothing to do with what is written or the titles of certain books. It is what is contained within those books that gives us what we need to know in order to at least address the question in terms of a problem and a solution. And yet, without understanding this, in addition to that, there are many passages in the scriptures that are virtually impossible to really understand, or what is worse is that you can come to a wrong conclusion concerning many of the passages in the scriptures if you have the wrong gospel. Because in most cases, what happens is is that the gospel defines our biases, our assumptions in how we approach many of the things that were written in the New Testament. Consider, for example, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, it is written, And having been made perfect, referring to the Lord Jesus, he became to all those who obey him 
the source of eternal salvation. When reading through a verse like this, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, where it says, All those who obey him, he is the source of eternal salvation. It's very easy to look at this from various perspectives, depending upon your understanding of the gospel. If we assume, for example, that your obedience to God is what allows you or enables you to be saved, that your salvation is dependent on your obedience, if you assume that that's the case, then this verse will be read from that perspective. And what I mean by that is obedience in the sense of you managed to get all of the sin out of your life, that you have repented from all of the things that you should not be doing, and you have also been very successful in doing all of those things that you should be doing, repentance and obedience. And if you are successful concerning those things that you should be doing instead of those things you shouldn't be doing, then he will be the source of eternal salvation for you and for you alone. That is an assumption that many people make because they believe that that is what their relationship with their God is truly about. They believe, in effect, that the Lord Jesus died for all of their sins for the most part in the past, in order to provide them with a renewed opportunity to begin to live a life of repentance and obedience and purity. And if a person is successful concerning this, then they will receive eternal life when they eventually physically die. To many people, that is the gospel. Many people sincerely believe that that's the good news, that the Lord Jesus has provided you with a true opportunity to now be able to possibly be saved if you are obedient to him. But if this is true, then what are we to do? What are we to repent of? Well, to repent, that's easy. You just simply look at the Law of Moses and identify all of those sins that are described in the Law of Moses. You can even go through the Gospels and see where Jesus mentioned many things about sins. Things like if you are angry with somebody without a cause, then that is the same as murdering them. Or if you think about committing adultery in your heart, then that is the same as committing adultery. You could look at that in the Sermon on the Mount that he gave, and you could identify a whole list of things that you should not be doing. And so that's relatively easy. But when it comes to obedience, well, then what are you going to do? Well, you can again go through the scriptures and identify a list of all the things that you should be expected to do. And in the same way, you can begin to live a life of repentance and obedience. Now, the obedience part, of course, depends an awful lot on how sincere you want to be in identifying this list. There are many things that are indirectly communicated and not directly communicated. But let's consider those things that were directly communicated. Things like, if your eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out. How about that one? If a person is going to obey him, obey Jesus, then they shouldn't have either one of their eyes. Or if you wanted to look at the letter of the law that he gave, he did say you were to pluck out your right eye, and so I suppose we could assume that you could keep your left. But what I mean by that is that many people believe that they are living in obedience to Jesus, but you take a command such as that and they are not obeying that command, then you should be honest and direct and say that you do not obey Jesus. You don't obey him, and so to you he is not the source of of eternal salvation. He will not provide you with eternal salvation if that's how we are going to understand Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9. 
He also followed that up with cutting off your right hand should it cause you to sin. Again, that perhaps means that you can keep your left, but to be honest with you, I think your left hand could probably cause you to sin as much as your right, and your left eye could cause you to sin as much as your right as well. So really consider that and take that seriously. There are other things that people consider in this context, such as the laws of Moses were too much to handle. They were definitely too much for us to deal with. And so we should look through the New Testament and try to identify those specific laws that Jesus gave. And those are the ones that we are to obey. And what people do when they make this assumption is they normally consider when the Lord Jesus said that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And many people will assume that those two commands which are a good summary of the entire law of Moses, are now the commands that we are to obey. And if we do obey Jesus concerning those commands, then to us who obey him, he is the source of eternal salvation. There are a number of people who believe that. And I want you to know that I totally and absolutely reject that particular assumption. I think it's a horrible assumption Because if you would read the law, if you would read the scriptures, read the law that was given through Moses, you would know that he's quoting Moses concerning those two. That all you have done is you have just simply cherry-picked from the law of Moses and picked out two laws that he gave out of 613, and you've just decided to focus on those and ignore the rest. In Deuteronomy, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, he said, "...you shall love the Lord your God." with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is also recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And concerning love your neighbor as yourself, you'll find this in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17 and 18. In Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 17, it says, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him that is hating your countrymen or your brother in your heart, as the Lord Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. In verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so these things were given in the law of Moses. And so to to assume that Jesus is saying that if you obey a couple of the commands that I gave, because these commands are the commands of Jesus and not the commands of Moses, then that is the way that we live. And in that way, we then have an opportunity to receive eternal salvation. I personally believe that that's coming from an individual who has not really studied the law of Moses, who does not know the Old Covenant. And that's fine. I don't think that a person would have to understand that in order to get down to the real important root issues. But those people who don't have a good understanding of the law tend to miss a lot of things in the New Testament that I think that they would benefit from if they were to understand a number of these things. And this definitely is no exception. And so when you consider this perspective of obedience, obedience to Jesus, well, then you have to ask what that's going to be. Because if you are going to look at the commands that he gave or the commands of Moses, you will never be obedient. And that's the point. I personally believe that in context here in Hebrews chapter 5, that this reference to obedience, obedience to him, 
is well defined in Hebrews chapter 3. At the end of Hebrews chapter 3, in verses 18 and 19, we have a description of obedience, or more correctly, of disobedience. And I personally believe that if you read chapter 5, verse 9, in context with Hebrews chapter 3 and also Hebrews chapter 4, that the writer himself has given us a definition that we should utilize instead of trying to impose our own assumptions about how we define disobedience. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, it is written, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedience? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Their disobedience, referring to the children of Israel, was that they did not believe what the Lord their God had done for them. They were assuming that they would have to go in and take over the promised land. They were assuming that because they were not willing to believe that he had already given it over to them. They just needed to walk in and take possession as he was directing them to do, but they would not believe him. So their disobedience was their unbelief. So also our disobedience is our unbelief. And this is the key unbelief, or the key point that I believe is in reference here. And that is that if you do not believe that he has taken away all of your sins, then you must believe that he will still hold your sins against you. And if he will still hold your sins against you, then you need to identify the laws that you must obey or the laws that define what you must repent from. In other words, you must live a life of repentance and obedience if you do not believe in the complete forgiveness of sins. You must live that way. You must live a life of obedience to the commandments. You will have no other alternative. But if you believe that the sin issue was completely resolved at the cross, then your belief is to trust in what he has done and receive what he is giving to you as a result of what he has done. If you will obey him by believing and trusting in what he has accomplished for you, then you can receive what he is giving And the first gift is eternal life. You can receive the gift of eternal life, which is your salvation. So what is eternal life? Well, eternal life has to do with the problem that exists between mankind and their God. That problem was well defined in the first three chapters of Genesis in context of our creation and in context of the recreation that God had to do after we disobeyed by eating from the wrong tree, or after Adam and Eve disobeyed by eating from the wrong tree. What happened was, was that God created Adam and Eve spiritually alive. They were created spiritually alive when he said that he breathed within them the breath of life and they became a living being. That breath of life was a unique construction that describes the very spirit of God that was breathed within them, And through his indwelling presence, they were then alive to God because of his life indwelling within them. But of course, then he gave the commandment that in the day that they eat from the wrong tree, they would surely die. They did eat from the wrong tree. They did surely die. 
But their death was not a physical death. It was a spiritual death. It was the absence of the life that had been breathed within them to make them living beings, unique beings from the animals, of course. And so they were once alive, and then they were dead, and then when they gave birth to children, their children were born in the image of Adam, not in the image of God, which was to say that they were born in a condition where they were spiritually dead, just as their father Adam and their mother Eve were, that they were also spiritually dead. And so the problem between man and God is much deeper than just saying that we have the need to have our sins forgiven. The problem between us and our God has to do with the fact that we are born into this world spiritually dead. And the only solution to this death problem is life. If you're dead, you don't need to be forgiven. I mean, it certainly is very useful and and very critical in this situation. But that is just going to leave you in a condition of being a forgiven dead person. You need to be made alive. You need to be resurrected. You need the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You need Jesus in your heart. That's another way to describe it. That's what you truly need. The whole world has been forgiven. When he died for the sins of the world, he died for the sins of the world. Everyone has been forgiven. The sin issue between mankind and God was over a long time ago. But that doesn't deal with the death problem. The death problem has to be solved. And that is only solved when a person receives the free gift of life. The free gift of the life that God is offering, which is his life, which is his spirit to indwell within you. Now, if you were to receive that free gift, if you do receive that free gift of the life of God, of the Holy Spirit, then what could possibly cause that life to depart from within you? What could cause the Holy Spirit to depart from within you? There's only one thing, according to what we understand as has been described in the law, it's sin. So the next time you sin, the Holy Spirit should depart. But there's a reason why the Holy Spirit will not leave you and why he will never forsake you. And that's because all sin was dealt with on the cross. That is why he forgave our sins. And that is why it is so important for the entire sin issue between us and our God to be completely resolved. Because if it's not resolved, then that means that there is a sin that remains there is still a sin that exists that could cause the Holy Spirit to depart from within us. And if that happens, then we would lose his life and we would die spiritually once again. But because all sin has been completely resolved, the free gift of life that he is offering, that we receive, if we receive that, then this life is by definition an eternal life or an everlasting life because the sin issue was completely resolved at the cross. That is the good news. This is the good news. It has to do with sin and death and forgiveness and the restoration of life. The problem of sin was resolved with forgiveness. The problem of death was resolved with the giving of life. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And if you understand this, then you can understand that your obedience is to first believe, and it is to trust, and it is to receive the Holy Spirit. And for those who will obey the gospel, he is the source of eternal salvation for them. And I sincerely believe that that is what the writer of Hebrews was intending to say in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him 
the source of eternal salvation. He is the source of eternal salvation to anyone who will believe the truth, and that is their exercise of obedience. And if you will believe the truth, then you will receive the free gift of eternal life, and then you will be able to begin to walk in an entirely new way of life, an entirely new way of living that is based on a personal interactive relationship with your God through the Lord Jesus. You can begin to experience that. Unfortunately, however, most people get paralyzed at that point by then starting to believe that they have to live a life of continually trying to obtain forgiveness for their sins that they continually commit. And when you believe that, you've been paralyzed right from the start and you will not experience the new life that you have been called to, which is a new life of trust and dependency and receiving all that he has for you to fulfill the deepest needs of your heart. And that, of course, is another subject that I don't have time to address in this program. But I did want to mention that this is what the writer was intending to say in context with eternal salvation. And I wanted to show you how easy it is to misunderstand what the writer was saying if you don't know what the problem is and you don't know what the solution is. That if you don't know what these issues are and you don't know what the purpose was of the law, then it's very easy to misinterpret and misunderstand what was being described here. And of course, that's what I'm referring to, is the fact that people just simply misunderstand or they do not know the gospel. They don't know the gospel, and so when they see a verse like this that says that those who are obedient, to those who are obedient, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation, then it's easy to assume that you have to be obedient to the extent where you get your flesh under control, instead of understanding that obedience has to do with believing, that it is in believing that you are obeying him, because that's what he commanded. He commanded us to believe, to believe in him, to believe that he has done it all, to believe that he is giving us eternal life. It is only then that a person can receive it. But if you believe that your flesh has something to do with it, then to you he will never be the source of eternal salvation, because you will never get all of the sin out of your life. And that's the point. You must believe that he truly does not hold your sins against you anymore. Obey that truth. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net 